happen. Just a little thing to keep in mind. One of the things I'm going to try to demonstrate this morning is that you can share the gospel using MasterChef. So just keep that in mind. You'll uh, find out how that's going to work later. So if you're a fan of MasterChef, you'll eventually learn that MasterChef contains some elements that allow us to share the gospel. Got that? Now, you might be wondering how that connects to Daniel, where George comes in, or Matt. Well, we'll find that out too later. So let's read from Daniel 1. We'll go 1 to 7. Um, There are a few strange names, a little bit long. If I stumble over them, I apologise in advance. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them in the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Then uh, they were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So here we have an introduction to the book of Daniel. This is uh, an introduction to a series on Daniel. And we'll be thinking through some of these sorts of things that um, might be helpful in introducing some of the themes that arise. So, just uh, repeat verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and with some of the vessels of the house of God, he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Quick history lesson for those who are keen on history. I actually had a lot longer history lesson and then I cut a lot of it out because I figured that only I'd be interested. But anyway, (laughs) there might be others. If you want more, we'll talk afterwards. But in 605 BC, at the Battle of Carchemish, the Babylonian army defeated what remained of the Assyrian army. The Assyrian capital, Nineveh, had been taken by the Babylonians a few years earlier. Uh, and they joined together uh, with a few others and defeated also the Egyptians. So it's 605, Battle of Carchemish. Now this victory made the Babylonians the dominant power in the region. So Babylon took control then of most of the former Assyrian Empire, the Medes ruled the rest, and all that the Egyptians had controlled, including Judah, which is the southern kingdom of what was once Israel, and had become a tribute-paying state under the control of the Egyptian Empire. In that same year, 605, 
Nebuchadnezzar II made a trip to Jerusalem. It was part probably of a survey of his newly acquired empire. And this is the occasion that's referred to in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. It was the first of three forays into Judah. The second was in 597, and the third and the most severe was in 586, and it was in 586 uh, BC that the temple was destroyed. Now, when the Babylonians conquered a people, they had a, a variety of approaches. First of all, they would obviously overwhelm and destroy in battle. But having conquered, one of the things they would do is take captive the nobility and the best and the brightest of the land that they'd taken over. And they would bring them back to Babylon where they would train them in the University of Babylon. And they'd give them a thoroughgoing education, in effect an indoctrination, an enculturation, um, so that they might become, in effect, Babylonian in their thinking. And when they graduated from this course of study, they would then be employed in the public service of the Babylonian administration. And this was the fate of Daniel and his three companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were set aside, if you like, to live a privileged life. They were going to be a, a, a part of, a, a, no doubt, probably a larger group of young men who were seen to have incredible potential, good-looking, robust in health, able to learn, and they were going to be trained in the ways of the Babylonians, in their language, their literature, uh, and so on. And they were going to play upon the capabilities already existing in these young men to prepare them to become, in effect, Babylonian and outlook, that they were going to transform their cultural understandings from uh, one that was consistent with being in, uh, a Judean to or, you know, a person living from Judah, an Israelite, to being Babylonian. It was to be a complete cultural transition, so much so that even their names were changed. Daniel, which means God is my judge, became Belteshazzar, although throughout the book of Daniel he's always called Daniel. Belteshazzar means may Bel or Marduk, as the chief god of Babylonians, protect his life. Hananiah, which means the Lord shows grace or my God is gracious, became Shadrach, which means the command of Aku, who's the moon god, the Babylonians. Mishael means who is like God. In fact, if your name is Michael, that's what your name is, Mishael, who is like God, became Meshach, who is like Aku. And Azariah, which means the Lord helps, became Abednego, which means a servant of Nabu, who's the son of Marduk. All of this really was a deliberate and concerted attempt at social engineering. It was intended as a means of manufacturing a new identity, of removing, removing all cultural differences and distinctions, thereby making these people culturally Babylonian. And if you're familiar with uh, Daniel's story, you'll know that he obviously passed his exams and he worked in Babylon. One of the things that's kind of interesting, I think, is it seems that he worked in Babylon uh, in a peaceful, um, cooperative manner, that he never seemed to be intentionally belligerent or obstructionist. But when it came to making a stand for his faith in the one God, the God Yahweh, whom he worshipped, the covenant-keeping God, uh, he remained firm no matter what the cost. There's no suggestion 
in the book of Daniel that he or others were really anti-Babylonian or secretly plotted their escape and their return to Judah or acted as spies on behalf of Babylon's enemies. None of that seems to be there. Rather, they were cooperative. Rather, they worked for the good of the land in which they lived and yet without compromising their commitment to their God, the one God to whom they were dedicated, in whom they believed. They, in fact, never lost their Israelite identity. They remained steadfast and uncompromising throughout. They never ceased trusting and worshipping Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, the God who had actually placed them in Babylon. Now, at this point, I'm going to make a bit of a leap. I'm going to wander away from um, Daniel a little, but I'm going to uh, do a couple of things. I'm going to suggest today that we can take what's going on here in Daniel chapter 1 and see something of ourselves in it. I'm going to take us uh, on a journey to us and to today. And I'm going to suggest that although, unlike Daniel and his three friends, we've not been captured and exiled to an unfamiliar um, land, um, but we are, as Christians, finding that in fact we are becoming strangers in the land in which we live. The attitudes and the values which most of us once took for granted and assumed that pretty well everyone else agreed with are no longer the norm. In, um, in 1 Peter, we find that Peter says that uh, when he writes to his particular audience, his audience of dispersed Christians, he says that now that they've become God's people, they've also become sojourners and exiles. So what Peter said of those to whom he wrote in the first century is no less true of Christians in the 21st century. In the Western world, and we know we have a variety of people representing all sorts of uh, backgrounds here today, but in the Western world, Christians and non-Christian worldviews understand reality in very different ways. So different that Christians can find themselves not merely opposed, but condemned, pilloried, threatened. And as Christians living in 21st century Australia, uh, most of us are in the rather odd position of being in a, uh, being part of the culture within which we live, so we've got that sort of upbringing, while also sensing an increasing alienation from that culture, but also having a responsibility to think and act counterculturally in order to live as God's people in what's becoming for us an increasingly strange land. We are, in a sense, strangers in a strange land. So I guess part of the question we want to ask this morning is, how do we as sojourners and exiles live in this strange land? How do we share the gospel in ways that can be understood by those who actually no longer speak the same language as us? We speak English, that's often as far as it goes. And so in a sense, I'm going to liken us to Daniel. Daniel and his friends lived as strangers in a strange land. We as Christians culturally are now living in a sense as strangers in an increasingly strange land. Now, before we get too, uh, too negative about all this stuff, I thought it was a useful thing to remind us of a whole bunch of really positive things that are really helpful for us to remember and to understand. Uh, 
I would suggest that of all the worldviews that we come across in our everyday lives, the people we meet, various religious representations, the philosophical representations, all those kinds of things, all those things expressed by various um, subgroups and so on, all those kinds of things are really just mistaken ways or wayward ways of uh, fulfilling what it is to be human what it is to be what God has made us to be. That there is something there that has in it um, the truth. And yet it's moved, it's shifted, it's not quite right. But it tries to address the existential cries of the human heart. And so we're trying to tap into those kinds of things. So just as a reminder, a couple of things that are just universally, I think, true for all human beings no matter what our worldview or outlook, no matter where we come from, no matter what our uh, religious position had been, and whoever we meet would be true of them also. Firstly, I think everyone is concerned in some way or other, even though they don't necessarily articulate it in this way, with the big questions of life. You know, we want to know who we are. We want to know what our purpose is. We want to know whether anything we do ever has any meaning at all. Uh, we want to know what happens after we die. We notice that there's stuff wrong with the world. We want to know how you solve that and why it's, why it's the case. We want to know if human beings are actually good or evil, somewhere in between. We want to know if we live in an open or a closed universe. See, every worldview attempts to address those kinds of questions. And every culture represents those answers in some way. And I'm going to suggest a little later that MasterChef does that as well. We'll see. I could be wrong, but what's it going to be? Everyone also has some inbuilt, innate knowledge of the power and the deity of God just by looking around at the stuff around us, at creation. We know we're something small in something big. There must be something bigger than us, a greater power. We've got that somehow inside us. We might deny it, but it's there. All people experience God's, what we call, common grace. You know, it rains on the just and the unjust, according to Matthew 5. But there's all sorts of other stuff, uh, well, that happens in our world. You know, technological advancement, the wonders of, of uh, medicine, uh, the fact that every culture and every uh, religion has a set of ethics by which to manage behaviour. Uh, as people relate to one another. We have the arts where we can experience pleasure of beauty and enhanced quality of life. See, everything that is true and beautiful and good comes ultimately from God. People may not admit it, but it's a reality. We share that. We're made in God's image. We're made relational beings. We're made male and female. We're made to live together. And we crave the intimacy of close relationships with one another and with God. And we find that that can only be fulfilled in relationship with God himself, ultimately. God has placed eternity in our hearts, according to um, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We want something transcendent. Right? We want meaning, we want purpose, we want something bigger than ourselves to give our life uh, purpose and uh, point. We want eternity we want a legacy we want a heritage we want something you know that's uh, that's beyond us that actually makes sense of our lives it gives us purpose and value we all sin we know that romans 1 to 3 just outlines that uh, wonderfully for us 
every person, every culture knows there's a problem. And every culture addresses it, uh, the issue of human uh, fallenness in some way. Every human society has, has to find ways to deal with those who act contrary to that society's norms. Every society does that. Why? Because it's reality. Every culture looks for ways to meet all of those desires, as I've mentioned. These are, if you like, these existential things, these existential cries of the human heart. And every culture tries to meet those, though imperfectly, and every culture looks for ways to make things better, for some means of redemption, for hope. These things are common to, to humanity. They're just about being people. It's what we are. It's what we're made to be. It's something that each of us, as Christians, can tap into. It's the reality of our shared experience as human beings. It's the point of contact that we can make with others. And yet we also need to try to understand something of the culture within which we live specifically right now in the 21st century. And again, I'm thinking principally of Western culture. I'm thinking particularly, I guess, of Australia. Um, and we know that we live in a kind of a post-truth world. Truth is now a construction. Um, God is now oneself. We, we argue for personal autonomy. We can make our own decisions. Human choice is above all else, those kinds of things. Every person, in effect, is thought to be or should be a moral relativist. You know, we make up our own morality. But uh, what we should be is authentic. We should authentically live according to the morality that we've created for ourselves. We should, be, uh, we should live uh, coherently uh, according to our own truths. It's kind of where we're at. I'll give an example just to illustrate that. I won't uh, sort of labour that too much, but just an example. We may all remember the recent events uh, surrounding Israel Falau. So we're likely to be aware of that um, recent furor um, where he responded to a question about the eternal fate of homosexuals. And he said in a tweet that homosexuals go to hell even if, or sorry, will go to hell if they do not repent. Okay? So it's that sort of scenario. Now, we all know, again, just if we're in, in any way involved in the media, uh, that the public outrage was swift, it was aggressive, and it was promoted by media and its opinion makers. It was not a discussion of truth, or the truth or otherwise of his assertions. It was simply an expression of uh, vitriol and offence. Falau had failed to take into account that we live in a world in which truth is a matter of personal preference, where everyone is able to construct their own truth and where authentic living is seen as living coherently or consistently with one's personal truths. In such a world, absolute truth is rejected. Universal truth claims are seen as power plays designed to oppress the less powerful or marginalised. Since truth is an expression of personal preference, when Falau posted his tweet, it was easy for his detractors, whether they're being genuine or not is another issue, but it was easy for his detractors to understand him to be preferring, right, to be preferring that homosexuals go to hell. So when truth is a preference, anything you say is your preference. Okay? So that becomes a very personal thing and a very personal statement, hence you attack the person. Now, this was never the case for Falau, because he's speaking out of a different worldview. But in a world which, uh, where preference trumps truth, it was an easy case to prosecute 
So I thought, you know, we see that as, that as sort of the worldview that we kind of live within in action, that uh, Falau himself was something of a victim of that. Now, again, within that, that same worldview, we find that there are glaring inconsistencies. And I'll just mention a couple, just so we're aware that this is the reality. The, the fact is that we do, we do live in a, a rational world. We can't void the law of non-contradiction. We can't say, you know, a and non-A are actually both true at the same time, even though they're opposites. If one is true, then the other will necessarily be untrue. It's just a fact. We can't avoid that. It's the nature of reality. If we're two people are standing in front or standing on a road and a truck's coming, and one says, I see the truck coming, I will get out of the way. The other one says, yeah, I see the truck coming as well, but I think I'll pretend I will, um, my, for me, my truth is that it's not coming. The reality is both can't be right. Either they're both hallucinating in some way or, or somebody's going to, yeah, it's not going to end well. The reality is we live in, the, in a rational world. We can't deny the law of non-contradiction, no matter what we choose to claim. Uh, we can't avoid the fact that we are human beings and as such have fundamental needs and desires which can only be satisfied in one way, even though we may look for other ways to satisfy them. You know, in a world which champions the independence of the individual, we find that people crave for connectedness. And yet the connections are so often just superficial and shallow and, and seem to leave people feeling alienated and alone. See, the desire for intimacy and connectedness remains unsatisfied in this personally autonomous world. Another consequence of this elevation in the sense of divine, to divine status of the individual is the severing of links between personal identity and anything bigger than itself. Identity is now wholly inward and individualistic. Yet ironically, individuals seek the affirmation of popular opinion, as a basic survey of any you know, social media platform will show. Another inconsistency is, at, is that the highest moral good has become tolerance. And yet it seems only, uh, to only apply to those with whom we agree. The reality is that people refuse to listen to alternative viewpoints. No longer is it enough to engage in respectful and civil disagreement. M many of these folks now want full recognition and affirmation. And again, the irony is stark. Those who act most aggressively, those who make complaints to anti-discrimination tribunals, are the same people who claim that individuals have a right to decide what is right for them. But apparently, those who have another viewpoint, in particular those who claim there are things like moral absolutes, are not permitted the same right. Religious and traditional or classical understandings of the virtuous life are commonly treated with outrage and open hostility. So what do we do with all that? Well, we've got this sort of a bit of an outline of a few, few thoughts, the things we have in common as human beings, the particularities of some aspects of the culture within which we now live. We can bring to this a solid understanding of uh, the tenets of the Christian faith, of our own relationship with Jesus brought about through the gospel. Um, and we can be confident that the absolute truth of the gospel message never changes that it remains exclusively and only the, and the only thing is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And with this in mind, we can then, I think, move boldly forward. And to aid us in that, I'm going to turn now to Acts chapter 17, where Paul addressed the Areopagus. 
So here we have an account in Acts chapter 17 uh, of Paul addressing the Areopagus in which his understanding of the cultural texts and context of the men of Athens enabled him to present to them the gospel. So what do we mean by that? Well, Paul was aware that the Athenians worshipped idols and that idols represented the many gods they needed to appease in order to keep those gods' wrath away or at bay. Uh, He was also aware that the worship of these idols was their way of attempting to fulfil their existential cry for transcendence. You know, they had the deep-seated need to connect with something bigger than themselves in order to give meaning and purpose to their lives. And they're, in a sense, embodied in these idols. Now, according to Sam Chan, and I'm grateful to David French here for introducing to me this to his fine book called uh, Evang- uh, yes, Evangelism in a Skeptical World, uh, according to Sam Chan, Paul employs a three-part methodology when addressing these men of the Areopagus. He says the, he enters, he challenges, and he fulfills. Enter, challenge, fulfill. It's really a way, this is what uh, Sam is doing, it's really a way of simply deconstructing a cultural text. Remembering that a text is any narrative, any story that expresses or reveals a worldview and its ways of addressing the big questions of life, the existential cries of the human heart. So what does Paul do? First, he, uh, he, he empathises with their culture. This is his ways of, way of entering into the culture. He empathises with their culture. In verse 22, note what he says to these men. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Okay? He empathises with their position. I perceive you in, in every way are very religious. I think it's also worth noting that Paul never mocks He doesn't criticise, even though verse 21 of the account says, Now all the Athenians and all the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now there's a bunch of people sitting around wasting their time, that's what it sounds like. But Paul doesn't tap into that. He says, I see you are very religious. He enters into their world. By empathising with their worldview, Paul in effect enters into their culture. And by doing so, wins or earns permission to speak further. Now, having entered their culture, he then sees an opening to challenge it. Verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. See, their existential cry for transcendence is filled, fulfilled rather in their worship of a multiplicity of gods. That's how they attempt uh, to fulfil it. They sought the blessings from these gods. They wanted to avoid incurring their wrath. They were concerned to get this right. And that concern went so far as to worship a god they didn't even know. Just in case. Just in case. You don't want to miss one because somebody might be out to get you. But the problem is, and this is where the challenge lies, the problem is that they can't guarantee a happy ending to their cultural story because they don't know who this unknown God is or what this unknown God really requires. And Paul is then able to use that as his opening for the gospel. So he challenges this belief and then enters in using that challenge with the gospel. Because Paul can offer a happy ending to their cultural text. 
he can end their story in a way that is genuinely fulfilling. He can offer a fulfillment that the worship of an unknown God cannot provide. So Paul says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul is able to make, in a sense, the unknown God known. To do so, he uses the language and analogies that, they, that are readily understood by those particular people, even quotes a couple of Greek poets who, just by chance, tell the truth. It's common grace. And all this leads then to his telling the gospel story in a basic form, but one which might resonate with them, for he speaks of ignorance being replaced with knowledge, of attempts to appease the God being replaced with real repentance. He offers a righteous ending, an ending that is certain, rather than the uncertainty that they've been living with. Why? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now from this, this offer of fulfilment, he gets a response. Some mock, some want to hear more, some believe. Verse 32 says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. See, we too, I think, can use this kind of methodology as a means of engaging in gospel conversations in this strange land in which we live. We can enter into the culture. We can challenge it. We can detect its existential cry and offer a means of fulfilling the need expressed by that cry. We can tap into and deconstruct our own cultural texts. MasterChef, you've been waiting, haven't you? So let's choose MasterChef as our cultural text. MasterChef is our cultural text. We enter. The primary motif or the primary uh, metaphor of MasterChef is the quest motif. Contestants are on a quest. They're on their food journey. Isn't that a wonderful place to be? If you look at me, you can see I've been on a food journey for quite a while. <laughs> Perhaps a different one. If they succeed in their quest, they can fulfill their goal of opening a cafe or a restaurant or writing a cookbook or hosting a cooking show. Food and this journey gives their life meaning and purpose. There's a message that drives the program. Individuals can achieve success if they work hard and believe in themselves. And here we see this cry for recognition, for respect, for success, for purpose. Now, it's not hard to enter into and empathise with the premise and the people involved in that cultural text. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of people here who watch the show and enjoy it thoroughly. It tells us that success is possible, that adversity can be overcome, that the immunity pin can be won, that the challenge can be faced and met. This is the individual as hero. And we can challenge this as well. So there's an opening for challenging the master chef story. Only one contestant wins. Everyone has to face the judges. One mistake, you're going home. Too much garlic, it's overcooked, it's undercooked, wrong texture, so on, and George is on your back and you're out. He probably will underpay you, but that's another issue. 
The quest has no guarantees. In fact, failure is far more likely than success. Only one person succeeds, everyone else fails, dreams are dashed in a moment, the food journey is over. Life comes to an end, really. But there might be a possibility of offering something else. See, MasterChef shows that self-belief and hard work are just not enough. The judges have issued a reality check. Most people go home without the prize. They don't achieve the recognition or respect they crave. They they lose purpose. They have none. If self-belief and self-reliance and even hard work can't guarantee the kind of success MasterChef has to offer, can they really be relied upon to achieve things of far greater significance than winning a TV contest? Is there any real or lasting purpose rather than this sort of superficial one? From here, we have an entry point to talk through the true grounds of human worth and significance and purpose and the fact that God regards people as so significant that his son Jesus was willing to face judgment on our behalf. He faced George so that we don't have to. Now, this kind of thing we can do with a whole bunch of things. Think about the other, and, you know, just, and I'll just mention you know, really, really briefly, other kinds of cultural texts. We come across them all the time. Think of Anzac Day. Heroism, sacrifice, identity, nationhood. But really, it's more romance than reality. It's a one-day-of-the-year thing. It's, it's passing. It's transient. It doesn't last. But there is a hero whose sacrifice has universal and eternal impact, Jesus Christ. Why is it we even think about sacrifice as being something to value? Why do we think about heroes and purposes as something worthwhile? Because it's inbuilt in us. It's part of what it is to be human, and it's the thing that allows us an entry point to talk about the gospel. Think about um, indigenous understandings of country, our own Aboriginal people. Country means to them identity, belonging, tradition, But the reality of the situation is that people can be dispossessed and thereby lose identity. But Jesus offers a a permanent home in his father's house, a place of eternal belonging. So we can tap into the cultural texts that we come across every day and allows us to enter in, to discuss, to see something of the existential cries of the human heart and the way our culture tries to meet those and we can offer a better way. We can challenge them at the point of their inadequacy and say, hang on, maybe there's something else, maybe there's another way of fulfilling this desire that's so deeply ingrained in you. So what I'm suggesting here, and I'll I'll, I'll finish with this, is simply this. Each culture has its stories, its cultural narratives, and they reveal the ways that culture attempts to meet the fundamental existential cries of each human heart. The need of the transcendent, the need for intimacy and love and connection, the need for purpose and meaning, the need for hope, the desire for pleasure and beauty and righteousness and freedom. These existential cries provide an entry point for the gospel because there is nothing in any culture in itself that is adequate to give those stories and individuals and cultural stories truly happy endings. Only the gospel can do that. The narratives also give us a language, motifs, metaphors, analogies that are readily understood by those living in that culture. 
They provide us the possibility of contextualising the gospel in ways that will make people want to hear more. And this in turn gives us permission to talk about the things the gospel ultimately addresses, matters of sin and judgment and the significance and necessity of Jesus' sacrifice. And as we speak, as we take these opportunities, as we tap into these cultural texts, we'll get a response. Some will mock, some will want to talk further, but some will believe. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that um, we have opportunity to share your word and we pray that we might uh, take opportunity where it presents itself to enter into the, the language and the stories that are so embedded in our culture and, we can s- and as we see in them uh, expressions of uh, fundamental desires, of existential concerns, Father, help us to know how to tap into those for the gospel. Help us to really be listening, to hear what people are saying to us and to, uh, in an empathetic and caring and loving way, uh, enable us, Lord, to share the message that truly fulfills, the message that gives a a genuine and lasting uh, happy ending. So these things we pray in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.